0: to me way. Thanks for coming. We're going to do a psalm, Psalm 89, for our call together. Forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord.
1: Forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord. Try this again. is established of the Lord I will sing forever, through all generations my mouth shall proclaim your faithfulness, for you have said, my kindness is established.
2: downtown staff here. Um, thanks for that, guys. Tonight, it's good to have you with us, Dave. Well, you're usually with us. You're just usually over there in the back, um, but on the base tonight. Um, I know that we'll have a few stragglers coming in from the Duke game. Does anybody know? Okay, good. Woo. Okay. I mean, I figured, but it was... Those free throws there were getting a little messy. I consider that
3: theological conundrum, quite honestly, yeah. you know, whether God is
2: good or- <laughs> That's right, that's right. <laughs> it's true. Um, so if you see some stragglers coming in, you know that they will probably be happy stragglers. Um, welcome to Amaze Way. We are a church that uh, gathers on Sundays uh, to talk about the way that we see God's redemption in the world. Um, and in Durham and in the places that we work and live. Um, Our main meeting is is on Sundays, but we also have some home groups and life groups that meet throughout the week. Um, Dan Rhodes leads our pub group on Thursdays, and we have um, a couple other home groups that meet in homes, obviously. Um, Tonight, we have a few visitors, but I know that we'll wait until the stragglers come in to talk about it, but Gareth and Jacob, is that right? Good to have you here. Um, Tim did you have an update for us about Durham Can? Yeah absolutely
3: these guys are going to be talking about the wild goose festival but we'll bury that for some of the stragglers but um Durham can, just want to mention, uh, we're at the, uh, Dan can give us a broader update. We're on the phase of house meetings that I'll be beginning, but I had a meeting on Friday with a small delegation with the uh, superintendent of the Durham schools. And so look for some so – it was an interesting action in that there was about eight or nine of us, very, uh, very multiracial group different interests uh, but one of the concerns that we're really targeting is Hispanic student performance in Durham which is kind of lower than low could be so to speak it's bad nationwide but but abysmal in Durham dropout rates Performance, a whole range of things. So it'll be an interesting negotiation. Uh, the new superintendent is a person who has actually an IF background in a certain way. So it'll it just be very interesting to see how this goes. Uh, the school strategic plan, which is a big one and a bold one, is very, very minimalistic for Hispanic students. And so, uh, anyway, that, that there'll be more to that, and I'll I'll tweet more and. Uh, and post more on our Facebook page as that develops. So I know several folks, Jesse and others, were involved on the kind of the educational audits. So that's
2: happy. Thanks for that, Tim. Well, it's good to, to be here tonight. Um, Wade and the guys are going to lead us in some more worship, and uh, we'll be back to talk about more John.
0: Thanks, Amy. John and John, we're going to pick up a one of the stories is is about a guy whose response to Jesus is just very different than the person that we saw a few chapters back who was healed at the pool um, and who was um, you probably remember the the line where Jesus said hey you know stop um, you know sinning and (laughs) kind of messing up your life and it it seems pretty harsh uh, to someone he had just healed but the guy was actually trying to turn him in and um, then this guy is going to be just have a completely different response to the grace that he's shown and so we wanted to have our songs tonight sort of focus on um, that love and, and that grace and, and what that can actually look like, a couple different stories of, of how that grace can feel. So uh, the first one is uh, Love Me Like, and a uh, song that I uh, worked on with the band The Basics when um, I was actually hadn't been in North Carolina that long, and I was just kind of overwhelmed with some of the things that were around me and I, I just felt a sense of God's care that, uh, that I don't always feel but I, I did at the moment so that's where this, these lyrics come from Love me like
1: a river that is a rain and so swollen, that carries off the good and bad the same Love me like an ocean that is wind swept in motion Bounding with the pulse of eternity. Take Sings the song that never fails Sings the darkness yearning for the dawn Love me like a gentle breeze That moves its way inside of me Cools the fires burning in my breath The river, the ocean, like a nightingale Love me like a tall oak tree whose branches fly away from me Keep me looking upwards for the light Love me like a long-stemmed rose whose thorns repel its bitter foes Soft and fragrant blossoms to arise Take my hand Lay me down when I don't have strength to stand fire here that keeps me warm, A shelter that is larger than this room. Let's try that with me. There's more that rises. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun, more that shines in the night than just the moon, more than just
0: this fire here that keeps me warm, A shelter
1: that is larger than this room. There's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment Music higher than the songs that I can sing Stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things So if I stand, let me stand on the promise If I can let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you So if I sing let me sing for the joy that is again if I stand. If I stand, let me stand on the promise you will pull me through. But if I can't than the love between friends more gentle than a mother's when a baby's at her side there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment and a music higher than the songs that i can sing but stuff of earth cookies for the allegiance i owe only to the giver of all good things if I stand, if I stand, let me stand on the promise you will pull me through. And if I can, let me fall on the grace first brought me to you. If I sing, let me sing for the joy that's born and If I weep, let it be as man who is longing for his home. If I stand, so if I stand, let me stand on the promise you will pull me through. And if I can.
3: You know um, we don 't talk about it a lot here, but uh, many of you know that a mass way has its origins in this kind of wider based movement called kind uh, the, the emerging church emergent church you probably read enough on blogs and like that to make you want to throw up but um, but there, there's this big community of folks that have been for years working really hard to um, to reform and revision what it means to be church what it means to be community what it means to be followers uh, of God in this world and um, and one of those folks who's been a, a partner in this for a long time is here tonight, Gareth Higgins. And I was telling Gareth yesterday or the day before that I actually had a Gareth Higgins moment. I was driving around town, I was thinking about him because as a part of, as long as I've been a part of this whole emerging church thing, we have sat in meetings, I mean, at least 15 years ago, ago, going, we really need to run a festival, not a conference, not a convention. We used to do these events that look like everything you've ever been to, speakers and bands and yeehaw and that sort of thing. But we, we thought, wouldn't it be great to express an organic, movement of God's people in a festival, but no one has ever done that before here in the U.S. in a, in a larger scale, and Gareth has taken on that role, which, uh, and, I, and I, the reason I was thinking about him is, you know, something that people have been hoping for and expecting to happen for 15 years, there's not any pressure on that to make that happen, is there? <laughs> but anyway, Gareth, come up and talk to us about the Wild Goose Festival, which is happening for us. Wonderfully locally yeah. and here in uh, North Carolina, so I may sit with you and just ask a question or two. But go for it.
4: Okay, okay. thanks, thanks, Tim, thanks everyone for for having me. Um, yes, I, I'm going to talk about uh, wild goose, but I want to start by telling you three brief stories that are my way into why I care about uh, this kind of stuff. Can you be my beautiful assistant and hold that postcard and like uh, on the prices right? Just just tilt, t- t- tilt infrequently. Um, Fourteen years ago, I was in Paris, uh, and uh, you know when you go to Paris, you go to the Eiffel Tower. And I, I it was a lovely warm, uh, balmy summer night, and I, I went and sat under the bridge right beside the Eiffel Tower. I had a, a small pack of Cohiba cigarillos. Now, uh, for cigar aficionados among you, you know that Cohiba is the brand of cigar. Uh, that Fidel Castro used to smoke until he quit smoking for health reasons. Now, it wasn't for the same health reasons that anyone here has quit smoking. It was because the CIA once tried to assassinate Fidel Castro with an exploding cigar. And if I were Castro, I would have quit smoking too. Um, (laughs) So I am smoking these little uh, Cohiba cigarillos and um, I have about five left in the pack. And uh, a a guy comes up to talk to me and it's obvious that he's a, a gentleman who lives outside And um, he's drunk and he's high uh, and uh, he starts to talk to me, asks me for one of my cigarillos and I I give it to him, light it up and we have a conversation. I had enough French uh, from my good Northern Irish grammar school education to be able to carry on a moderate conversation with him. Uh, He was 31 years old. He was called Jean-Marc. He was from Switzerland. He'd been in the Swiss army, you know, the company that makes the knives. And uh, had come to Paris a few months prior to this, had fallen on hard times and was now homeless uh, in the City of Light. Um, And uh, after about 30 minutes, I needed to get the last metro home. And so I asked him if I could give him some money, and he didn't want me to give him any money. So I then said, is there anything else I can give you? And I don't usually think this way, but as I was saying this, I literally saw in my mind's eye a picture of Jesus saying, give to those who ask from you. And my inner monologue saying, he better not ask you for the rest of your Cohiba cigarillos, because if he does, you're going to have to give them to him. Um, And so I said, is there anything else I can give you? And he said, "Uh, can I have the rest of your cigarillos? And I smiled the smile of Mother Teresa and uh, grinned the grin of Hitler and gave him the, the cigarillos. And he then reached into his backpack and took out a. Uh, a kind of an old cardboard box and handed it to me and inside the cardboard box was a set of electric hair clippers which he told me he had found just yesterday and he wanted me to have the hair clippers in exchange for the cigarillos so I took them and then he embraced me and kissed me on both cheeks the way French people do and pulled me close and kissed me full on the lips for about four or five seconds uh, moved slightly away from me he was about an inch away from my mouth And said, "Je n'ai pas le sida, je vous fais plaisir," which means, "I don't have AIDS, and I'll give you pleasure." And I was crestfallen because I'd gone into this encounter just wanting to be friendly with a stranger who had fallen on hard times, and he had been so reduced by his circumstances that he could no longer accept the gift of ordinary friendship. He had to assume there was an ulterior motive. And at the same time, it was partly because I went into that situation the way followers of Jesus often do with homeless people in that we think we have something to give them rather than we're both human beings who might have something to give each other that he had picked up on that vibe and had misinterpreted it. So it's partly my fault that his memory of that night is probably a rather tragic one. This has a connection to the Wild Goose Festival. Tim will be kissing everyone for four seconds on the lips as they... (laughs) Arrive. There is, a deeper, there, there, there is a deeper connection. By my watch, I've gone two minutes. Um, I, I, we have, I have a serious time limit on me. Um, uh, but the clocks went forward. Doesn't that mean I have an extra hour? Okay. Um, the second story is in, the, uh, in April 2005, I was in South Africa at a conference on art and reconciliation in the city of Pretoria, Tishwane. And it was an amazing time. And uh, after I spent a week in Pretoria, Tshwane, I, I went to Cape Town, and I did all the things you do when you're in Cape Town. I went to Robben Island, got to be in Mandela's cell, um, got to see Table Mountain, and had a really wonderful experience. It was coming up to uh, Easter, and on Monday, Thursday, which in liturgical traditions is it's the day before Good Friday, it's the, it's the day when uh, you give alms to the poor. To this very day, the Queen of England. Um, who thinks she's the queen of my country uh, uh, <laughs> for some archaic reason to do with political occupation and so on and so forth. We'll get into that another time. Um, she still gives charitable donations in church on Monday, Thursday every year. So the tradition still exists. It's about when you, when you give alms to the poor. Um, and I wanted to go to mass in Cape Town Cathedral, the cathedral where Archbishop Desmond Tutu had served for so long and uh, my favorite story about Desmond Tutu is that at the height of the apartheid era there was an anti-apartheid meeting in the cathedral attended by hundreds of African National Congress and other anti-apartheid activists and the South African secret police who came in and lined the walls of the church and were literally taking photographs of the people in the pews to use against them later and Archbishop Tutu in that mischievous way that he has came down out of the pulpit and instead of feeling afraid or pretending they weren't there, he went up and started shaking the hands of the secret police and welcoming them into church. Hi, it's great. Never, never expected to see you in an anti-apartheid meeting. Thanks guys. Um, and then he addressed them all and said, you know, I know why you're here. You're here to threaten us. You're here because you think you're in charge, but the truth is we've already won this war. There's just a few more battles to be fought. And in the future, you'll agree with us that we were right. And you'll be ashamed of yourselves for what you're doing tonight. But I'm going to make you an offer. If you'll put your cameras and notebooks down and sit in the pews, you will be welcomed as the new and most honored members of the anti-apartheid movement and nothing you've done before tonight will count against you. And he asked the hundreds and possibly thousands of anti-apartheid activists in the room to say whether they agreed with him or not and they all said amen. In the future you'll be ashamed, or in the future, you can look back on this moment as the proudest moment of your life. So I wanted to visit this cathedral on Monday, Thursday, 2005. I asked the incredibly beautiful woman at my hostel reception um, if she could match her beauty with uh, wit and intellect and map-reading skills. Um, That sounds very sexist, doesn't it? Forget I just said that. Um, I just remember her being incredibly beautiful. I asked her... There's no point anymore, is there? (laughs) Okay. The Wild Goose Festival was going to take place. (laughs) Um, I asked her how to get to the cathedral and if it was safe to walk there because Cape Town has a fairly uh, serious urban crime problem. And she told me how to get there. It was about a 10-minute walk. I asked her if it was safe, and she said yes. And she was right for about the first 90 seconds of my walk because I wasn't mugged until about a minute and a half into the walk. Um when a young man came up to me and demanded money. So I opened my wallet and I gave him the first note I found. It was worth about four bucks and put it into his hand. It wasn't enough money, he opened his other hand in which he was concealing a rusty industrial knife of the kind that you do not want to be stabbed in the face with. If you have to choose the knife that's gonna stab you in the face, you don't want it to be an industrial rusty one,
5: okay?
4: Exactly the Swiss Army but Exactly, don't you, be- these are beautifully underwoven <laughs> stories. So then I kissed him and... Um, <clears throat> He said, I don't want to stab you, give me some more money. Now, this is a beautiful way to begin a mugging because I didn't want him to stab me either. And this is a, you know, it's kind of, you know, win-win to start with. I had been trained in nonviolence and had sat under the ministry of Professor Walter Wink for years. And so while I'm not a particularly courageous person in terms of my actions, my brain tends to think about what the nonviolent response should be. I don't always do that, for sure. But something in me was so angry about this situation. I didn't want him to win through violence and I didn't want him to win through me running away in fear. So I decided I would tell him I was on my way to church in the hope that it would trigger a memory that he used to go to church and that maybe a Sunday school teacher had once told him, there are many things you can do in this life but one of the things you shouldn't do is that you shouldn't threaten people with rusty industrial knives. So I took another note out of my pocket. I slammed it into his hand and said, look mate, I'm late for church and stormed off. With righteous indignation. And he didn't pursue me. And he didn't get all the money in my wallet, and I didn't get stabbed. It seemed to be a good compromise. I was enjoying and reveling even in the fact that I now had a new sermon illustration for about the next two minutes until I was mugged again uh, by an older gentleman who, this time, we were in the pre mugging phase before I said, Look, mate, I'm late for church. At which point he said, Really? I'm a Christian too. Which is a beautiful illustration of what passes for Christian ethics in the church today because um, you can uh, build missiles for a living and not sleep with your secretary or um, you can exploit your workforce but not fiddle your taxes. Uh, You can mug someone but do it politely and it counts as Christian. Uh, I said to him, look, if I give you 10 rand, which is about a buck, will you leave me alone? He said, why don't you make it 20? Uh, mugging by negotiation Be- again better than being stabbed and better than losing all my money So I gave him the 20 rand I decided I wasn't gonna walk any further at this point I'd hail a cab instead and the cab driver really mugged me unregulated taxi driving That's the job I should have <laughs> So he drives me to church and because I'm in a cab. I'm the first person there Except for the stewards who hand me the liturgy for Monday Thursday, and I go and sit at the back of the church And I'm shaking by this point because the shock of what has happened to me has set in. And I remember picking up the printed notes and reading them with my hands shaking and being reminded that Maundy Thursday is about alms to the poor and I'm in the church where Desmond Tutu once told the secret police that they could either be ashamed of themselves in the future or make a decision tonight that they'd be proud of later. And I've never been angry with the two men who mugged me because part of the reason that they were in the circumstances they were in is my fault. Three weeks later, Pope John Paul II died. And in my home city of Belfast, a piece of very vicious anti-Catholic graffiti went up on a a wall of a supermarket car park on a major arterial route into the city center that about 50,000 people drive past every day. The graffiti said, where the F is the Pope now? It had been put up by young Protestants. They'd even written in the word ha-ha at the bottom because they wanted to be sure people knew they were mocking. Where the F is the Pope now? All the Catholics who saw this graffiti would be mortally offended. Half of the Protestants would be ashamed, and the other half of the Protestants would think, nice one. It could just as easily have been a piece of graffiti about the Protestant Pope. It could just as easily have said, farewell, Rob Bell. Um, (laughs) And Protestants would have been offended. (laughs) And he would have sold a lot of books. Um, So... Uh, Jacob, who's over there, and I, and another friend, Stuart, went out at four o'clock in the morning. Because as Protestants, we did not want this to stand in our name. Because it's too easy to say, well, we're not like the Protestants who wrote that. Well, actually, we are, or at least in the eyes of the public, one Protestant is as good as another. One Christian is as good as another, or as bad as. We uh, read the passage from Isaiah about turning swords into plowshares. And we prayed the Lord's Prayer and we went over to this piece of graffiti that said, where the F is the Pope now, ha ha. And instead of covering it over, we wanted people to see what was underneath what we wrote. And so we wrote the word, sorry, five times. Sorry, 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 sorry. And then we went home and the car that I was driving that night, which now belongs to friends of mine who I gave it to when I moved to Durham, still has white paint on its steering wheel as a reminder that sometimes you can do something that you'll be ashamed of in the future or you can make a decision that you'll be proud of forever. The Wild Goose Festival exists at the intersection of justice, spirituality and art. And the reason it exists is because people who follow Jesus so often completely misdiagnose situations like when we're talking to homeless people in Paris. Or we need to say sorry before we can be heard because of the sins of the church. Or every now and again, we get it half right. Like when I told two men in South Africa that I was going to church and that's why they shouldn't mug me. It's happening three months, one hour and 99 bucks away from here. If you're a student, it's a little more if you're not a student. It's a really significant opportunity to bring people together over three and a half days to hear great music, participate in conversations with thought and activist leaders from across the country and some from around the world, uh, to eat amazing food, and most of all, to try to become a community that's more than the sum of its parts, that will eventually inspire action year-round and galvanize Jesus followers who really do want to change this society that we're in, who recognize that the movement for social change that is guided by the teachings of Jesus needs to be renewed. The spirit of Woodstock needs to reassert itself in this country. Um, we need something like Burning Man meets the Southern Baptist Convention, um, or maybe not. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm privileged to be the executive director of the festival. Jacob is the operations coordinator. way is a key community uh, locally because there's no one in this room uh, who would not enjoy being at Wild Goose and, and who also ha- who also doesn't have something to contribute to it. The last thing I'll say is one of the things I'm looking forward to the most about Wild Goose is that we're trying to collapse hierarchies between public figures and audience members. There's no VIP reception area. There's no notion of elitism. In fact, every one of the speakers who've been invited in there is a fantastic lineup of speakers. They've all been invited to give a talk on the topic a question that I don't know the answer to in the hope that the audience will answer their question. Because we've got to move beyond this notion of there being experts and learners or at least of there being two clear boundaries between those things. It's the 23rd to the 26th of June. It's at Shikori Hills, which is a farm that is exactly one hour's drive from here. Tim will kiss you on the way in. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards, as with Jake. Thank you for your time.
3: Fantastic. Uh, we will be not only present, uh, but hopefully one of the asks for this is for you to use your network in terms of your social network, your friends, to, to get the word out here. One of the things that's really exciting about this being local is that we have the opportunity to um, to not only support it, but potentially participate in it several years in a row here as a community. So Jenny Nicholson is... as one of the folks that's part of the the group that's planning this and one of the things I did want to say is I think one of our tasks uh, which I think will be a fun one is that we're going to kind of run the coffee hut For that so uh so jenny's i'm sure brokering a big deal from the beach now with muddy dog roastery to to do that but that's one of the tasks that emmaus way is going to do but uh, gareth is a neighbor lives a couple blocks away and so um if there's a hopefully there'll be other opportunities for us to support the festival besides just attending and there's some great folks here um michelle shocked Derek webb shane claiborne um david wilcox t-bone burnett um Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, uh, great folks. People know most of those folks well and just will be incredible people to, to connect with. And, and most, a lot of people, it's an opportunity to camp. I guess people here can, could go back and forth as well. So fantastic. Well, thank you, Gareth. And Jacob? Thank you, guys. Hey, um, as is typical for Emmaus Way, I want to give you a second to stand up, offer the peace of Christ to each other. And uh, if you're beside somebody you don't know, introduce yourself and uh, I'll give you a shout tonight. We're catching up on time a little bit in terms of having a, a late Blue Devil start here. Not uh, not, <laughs> not But anyway, so in about 90 seconds, I'll give you a shout. All right, go for it. So, gang, um, today we um, we have been journeying through. Um John's Gospel, which is this dramatic text of God's love in flesh, and uh, we're at one of those moments, kind of an apex moment, in the, in, in the sense that the way this narrative is written, one of the goals is to take us to the story we're going to look at today and fully appreciate that story, and so uh, it's, it's one that some of you will be familiar with. It's a, the story of the healing of a man that was born blind, but just a little bit of a rewind just to, to remind you of where we are in the flow of this. Um, just the last week we were, uh, were in this section of John's Gospel that deals a lot with... Um, Festivals, and Jesus is making bold declarations of his identity, his persona, his mission in the midst of of these great gatherings of the jewish people and we 're still connected to the festival the tabernacles and If you remember, as we talked about this, this was a, a festival that had this dramatic water pouring ceremony and a dramatic lighting of lamps. Um, And not surprisingly, Jesus in that moment described himself as a person who was living water and the light of the world. Uh, And and literally in these dramatic moments, he's co-opted the ritual to say that the Christ, the Messiah, the son of man, as he puts it, is is here. But we've been having kind of a sub-conversation in this last week, one that I do, I wanna affirm you guys. I asked a couple of hard questions last week and I absolutely loved the answers that you guys brought in our dialogue. I asked you the question, why do you fight? Jesus. I mean, what compels you uh, at, at its base for you to continue following Christ? And then I flipped the question around and said, uh, basically, what causes you the possibility of that you're crazy for doing that, and and that, and in some way, the identifying yourself with with God's work or uh, God's grace or Jesus, if you do that, what what? What scares you that that might be the craziest thing that you've ever done? And your answers on that were absolutely fantastic. So this text that we're in has produced this sub-conversation about... um, uh, belief and unbelief, following or not following God. And that's actually been the tension of Jesus's interactions with the crowds, the Pharisees, the leaders of the land is this debate. And and we've seen the people divided. We've seen the leaders divided. There's this huge conversation that this man who has done things that we could hardly imagine is doing them in our midst. And who is he? Is he the prophet? Is he the coming of Elisha again? is he the Christ is the Messiah is he a prophet who speaks the word of God or is this a crazed man or just another idiot from Galilee who speaks with a southern accent and has nothing to offer to us and so there's this huge debate about about Christ and it's prompted in us this week hopefully and next week as well this idea of what causes us to follow what repels us from following what what are the challenges of that understanding let me remind you of one verse from last week that was a significant one. This was John 7 17. Um, it, it said, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Um, and, and we just made the really simple point that following Christ uh, makes a lot more sense on the inside. We learn to pray by praying. We learn to be people of justice by doing just things. We learn to take risks, not by talking about it abstractly, but literally taking risks for the work in the heart of God. And so in some ways, what John is setting us up to to realize is that the Christ is visible. The work of Jesus is recognizable from the inside. Uh, And those who insist on being on the outside, it's not going to look like a lot of sense, but from the inside, something is beautiful. Now, I realize that kind of confronts a lot of our paradigms for what it means to to follow God, because a lot of times, what do people do when they want to follow God? They They start with a huge doctrinal statement, 42 pages of everything that you've got to get right to follow Jesus. Or they start with a huge traditional package. Here are the things that have been really important to this people or our people or my people for hundreds of years and you need to get this right, so to speak. Um, And in many ways, John is not recommending that type of approach to following Jesus. He's saying that literally living as Christ lived, following the heart of Christ is is something where the gospel, the good news that Jesus talks about makes sense. So that brings us to this story today in in John 9 uh, of of, of Jesus encountering a man born blind. If you have your handout, I'm going to just tell the story tonight with several interruptions, but you you may want to follow along. I've kind of got it parsed out a little bit so you can get a sense of the flow of this. This is literally an, an amazingly crafted story. It's a story, maybe one of the best standalone stories in all of the gospel. It's filled with humor, um, irony, which John loves to do, uh, sarcasm. It, it's some of John's best writing and and the people who compiled the work of John, the evangelist who's writing this, some of his absolute best stuff. So here the encounter begins. There is a man who is blind. He's begging. He's, uh, it, Gareth, it's, it's perhaps not unlike your, uh, your, your person in, in Paris. And this time a religious figure is there and people have the opportunity to ask a question like, well, where did the sin come from here? Was, this, was it his sin or was it potentially the sin of his parents? his grandfather, his grandmother, his lineage that caused him to be born blind because the assumption theologically always was that that sin was the cause of something that was wrong in people's life. In fact, the, there was lots of the rabbis who talked about even how a fetus could sin in the womb. And, and so it would be easy to for a child that might have had a problem or an issue in life to assume that in some way that was an action that the mother did that caused sin to be involved with this fetus, so to speak. So this was a pretty common conversation. But Jesus steps back from this and rebukes that theology. Uh, He says, hey, this man did not sin, nor his parents sinned, but there is something here that's about to happen that's going to declare the greatness of God. And then he goes back and says what he said the last time. He said, hey, I am the light. Uh, While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, There is something about to happen here which is unique and it declares who I am. So then... In just two short verses, John kind of gives us the miracle. So Jesus kind of, I don't know if he makes a big deal of it or not, but he spits on the ground, you know, he hocks a good loogie down there and, you know, cranks some mud. And, you know, it may have been like when you were a kid and made spitballs or mud cakes or that sort of thing. And, and that was always one of our tricks is to lure our younger siblings into eating like these horrific mud cakes. And I lived on a farm, so there were cow patties nearby. So when we made mud cakes, they could be an even special mixture, if you'd like. So Jesus is, you know, making a kind of a mud pie and, and he puts it like a compress on the man's eyes. And then he tells him to go wash in this specific pool of Siloam. Now, a couple things to know here is that all kinds of human bodily excretions were all assumed to be Uh, unclean. So whether we're talking about uh, a menstrual flow or spit or blood or any of these things, uh, urine, saliva, all of those things were assumed to be unclean. But one of the most common things of kind of magicians of the day was to take something that was unclean and turn it into some act of blessing. So Jesus is kind of making a show of doing something that people would expect is, is is unclean and he's making it uh, into something that actually has healed the sight of this blind man. Now, a lot of the church uh, fathers jumped on this and said, it's really interesting that, you know, you read in the old Testament that, that God caused life to come from breath and dust and things like this. And somehow, and you know, John loves his symbols. There's something unique about this mud being fashioned into something that normally would take away sight, but literally gives sight to the people, and so this man is healed. He he washes his eyes in this pool pool called Siloam. Interestingly, the name of the pool, John kind of lobs this one at us. Comes from it means sent literally, Jesus has been saying, I am the sent one. Uh, as strange as that sounds, and it's about to get him killed for saying that, but he keeps saying, I'm the sent one. And he literally sends this man to the pool who is called sent, and, and it demonstrates his power. Interestingly, also, the pool that he sends him to is where they got the, the water for the big water pouring right in the Feast of Tabernacles. So John is writing this, and it's filled with symbols. And then after this short couple verses on a dramatic miracle, we get these interrogations. At first, the neighbors come, and they've seen this man begging for, for years maybe, and they literally, they look at him and they say, that guy can see. Is is he the guy that was the beggar? No, I mean, you know, maybe he's changed his hair a little bit or something's I mean, it looks like the guy, but surely it is not the man who who was blind. And and they go to the guy who is seeing and they say, Who are you? And 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 how are your eyes opened? And he says, Jesus did this. And it's interesting, he said, the man they call Jesus. Each one of these little interrogations has a confession as a part of it. Now for those of us who did that, when you, if you were here on the story when we did John five, why is that unique? Uh, you know that story of the paralyzed guy for thirty eight days. What's the, for thirty eight years? What's the one thing he doesn't know? He has no idea of the name of the person who's healed him. I mean, it stands as this. They say, who healed you? You've been waiting by this pool to be healed for 38 years. You didn't catch the name of the guy who let you, you know, this guy's like, "It was Jesus? Jesus did this to me. And, and so, and I don't think this was a dastardly act. But the people take him to the Pharisees. And because the Pharisees are the religious leaders, they're the seminary students. You know, it's kind of like, sometimes I'm reading something really complicated and I'm not sure I understand it. And then this little dim kind of beavis and butthead light bulb comes off. And I think, this might be what this means. I often at that moment will call Dan or Dave or Amy or somebody who's in school and say, what do you think? Is this like a crazy idea? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, or sometimes they'll say, you're on to something here. Well, they are just naturally doing that. They've, they've seen this incredible miracle. The man says, it's me who was healed. I'm the one you've been watching. And so they take him to the Pharisees to uh, begin to figure out what does this mean? And so the Pharisees, they look at him and they say, you know, um, they bring him to the Pharisees. Uh, the man had been born blind. And what do the Pharisees focus on? It happened on the Sabbath. So again, Jesus has gone out of his way to do something dramatic on the Sabbath day. And, and how many acts of work do you think, Trigger, how many acts of work do you think was involved in this healing as it's been described? absolutely like spoken like a good jewish theologian cuz it's 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 making the mud pie is would be like kneading grain so to speak so we know that one's bad and and compressing it that one's questionable i mean if you've made the mud pie you've sinned but putting it on someone's face i don't know that could be play who knows but but certainly healing would would qualify so we've got two or three violations here and and they they're deeply concerned about this and they start asking the question How could a sinner do something like this? Now, there's a big backdrop in the the Old Testament. Uh, In Deuteronomy, the, the Jews are warned that there are people who do miracles. There are people who do great things. You know, even the sorcerers of Pharaoh turned perhaps the staff into a snake. So if someone does an act, a miracle... You know if I levitate Dale 's drums here and I say this is evidence that we are going to worship moloch uh, then then in deuteronomy what we 're told there is that anybody who uses a miracle to draw people away from God should be killed so so just because somebody's done something that 's a miracle doesn 't mean that it is from God, so they press this man who's been healed and they say. What happened here? Tell us exactly what he did. And in his response, another confession, he says, this man who did this to me, he's a prophet. So now the Pharisees are kind of stuck. The neighbors realize that it was the man who was blind. The the man has been interrogated by the Pharisees. And he is praising Jesus, or at least saying the man's a prophet. So where do they go next? They go to his parents. Because the concern here is, was he really blind? How long has he been blind? Why do you think? I mean, you think like, like a, a, a very self-righteous religious leader on this. What's one of the concerns of whether this man was blind all of his life? I don't know if you can get this. Let's say that Ryan Simmons is running around out in the backyard here and he trips and falls and hits a stick and it goes into his head and he's like bleeding out. You know, that's an emergency, right? And I mean, if Wade has the ability to heal him, I think you should go ahead and do this. But if Ryan has been blind his whole life, then there's no emergency doing this on the Sabbath. We could wait. Could you wait one more day, Ryan? Maybe till tomorrow morning to see, you know? And so the Pharisees are deeply concerned about, was this an emergency healing? Because we know we've got, as Trigger said, two or three violations here, but now we need to know what's the timing of this whole thing. And so they ask the parents, they go and say, hey, is, is, was your son blind from birth? Or was this something more recent? And they understand there's a concern here. They understand that there could be consequences for not getting this right. And so they say, Ryan's of age. Go ask him. He'll tell you what happened here. So they kind of pass the buck on this. Uh, And then John writes this out. He says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, John is probably writing that in his own context, because what is happening when John is writing these things is that Jews who confess Jesus are being thrown out of the synagogue. But it's his way of saying that there were great consequences of claiming that Jesus had done this great miracle. Why? One of the big reasons for this is that the Old Testament is filled with example after example of giving sight to the blind, literally being an act that declares the Messiah is here. That the age of the Messiah has come. So they continue to dispute this. So where do they go next? They go back to the man again. And his interrogation begins. And they say to him, give glory to God and tell the truth. Now that sounds like a nice religious line, right? Sarah, give glory to God now and tell the truth. But the the real translation of this is, stop lying (laughs) And start telling what really happened now. It's a confrontation of this man. And and he replied, you know, he replies to them, I told you what happened. Haven't I already told you this and you did not listen? Why? Do you want to hear the story again? Or do you want to become a disciple of Jesus too? And, and it, this is kind of a hilariously sarcastic thing. They've got him, they got the light under there. They're waterboarding him a little bit or dripping at least water on his forehead. He pops up and says, I told you it was Jesus. Uh, do you want to follow him too? Now they're just absolutely furious with this hymn. They hurl insults at him and they say, You are this fellow's disciple. We're the disciple of Moses. We we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, again, John is kind of probing us with some humorous irony here is that he's basically implying, you know, if you really knew what Moses said, if you'd really read Genesis 49, if you'd read the suffering servant stuff in the Old Testament, you would know that Moses testifies that the Messiah will be like this man, but they are so entrenched in their desire to see that He has sinned as Trigger has pointed out, or he's done something that wasn't necessary, or he is like somebody that Deuteronomy 13 would say we should kill. So they continue to press this thing, Uh, and the man continues saying, hey, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And at this point, they say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How you dare lecture us? Now, some of us have probably heard that once or twice, like uh, from a parent or an angry teacher, or maybe you went to Catholic school and a nun got at you really hard. But but what's funny about that? You were steeped in sin at birth. And what's the one thing they're trying to prove about this man? He wasn't blind <laughs> or if he wasn't blind in the very beginning, something happened and he had a, hand, a handkerchief over his eyes and Jesus took the hand. They're trying to prove that he really doesn't have a big claim. And now they're so mad, they're literally affirming the claim of the man who said, hey, we know you are blind from the very beginning. So the man goes on and and, and at this point they throw him out. You are no longer welcome in front of us. I don't know the consequences of that, whether he's literally thrown out of the people of Israel or he's just thrown out of their presence. But they're done with him. Now, interestingly, who finds him next? Jesus. And have we been noticing this, that Jesus and John does miracles. And then he goes in and checks in on the people. He goes back to the guy who was paralyzed for 38 years and he has some really soft words for him, right? He says, you know, have a quiet time and pray some more and stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. But to this guy, he comes up and he says, do you believe in the son of man? And the guy goes, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him. In fact, the son of man is Me, right here in front of you. And the man says to him, I believe. And he begins to worship him. And then Jesus goes on and says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now, the way the story's written, the Pharisees are hanging out. They're kind of listening in on the conversation. They hear the word blind and they say, surely that's not us. We're not the blind ones, are we? Um, And Jesus says, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. So it's a dramatic encounter. It's an incredible contrast between the story we looked at several weeks ago, between a man who didn't even know Jesus's name, gives him up to the authorities, and this guy who confesses him three different times. Um, so let me stop for a minute. And you've gotten some of the background of this. I gave you a little bit of the What are your impressions of this story? What is the story about? Uh, how does, uh, what are your thoughts, your reactions, your questions, or, or something that you throw at this story?
6: the Pharisees are kind of pretending to be all evidence-based. So, um, who did this? Well, he's a sinner. And, and both this guy and his parents just give them evidence-based back. Well, you know, the guy healed me. What are you going to do with that? They keep, they keep trying to interrogate in such a way to say that the parents. You what know, <clears throat> do well, you know? They say, well, all we know is, you're blind, and I can see. You know, you, you explain it. That kind of... They're trying to put the explanation on on this guy and his his parents, and he's putting it right back, saying, "Well, you explain it different." And I think what's really interesting there's that speaks to me, which I guess was in the context of um, the parable of time, is often when we engage with the world, we've got this, "Well, you explain, you know, the whole Bible and you know all high criticism claims against." Well, yeah, you guys can maybe explain, you know, 2,000 years of people being willing to die for respect. Like, there's something else going on here, which that kind of argument isn't going to resolve. And that's part of what this is about. Is like you can throw these kind of claims pretending to be evidence-based back and forth, but actually something else is going on. Like the Pharisees know pretty well they've got Max to grind. I mean, people are sort of defending themselves by saying, well, we'll be all evidence-based and saying, well, we just know this, but there's something else going on. If you just get trapped in that, you're not going to see the bigger picture or the bigger story. Yeah, I think it's really
3: interesting that there's kind of a collision of two things going, and you put that really well, Andrew. There's kind of an evidence-based or a doctrine-based thing. They're, they're, They're holding this huge weight of doctrine saying, we know we're right, and we read it this way, therefore, you can't be right. And then you've got this blind beggar person who's basically just confessing, I don't know, once I was blind, now I see. I, I, that seems to be a good thing. And it's interesting, that the way I broke it up for you, notice that there's two tracks to this story. There's one tract of kind of an ongoing confession of the man. He first, you know, he first, the confession is pretty simple. They call him Jesus. And he says, he's a prophet. And then he goes on to say, this man is from God. And then ultimately he says to Jesus, you're the son of man. And I believe you. So there's this progressive kind of confession. And then the, the, the religious leaders of the day it's the opposite. They're kind of open-minded. Maybe something neat happened, but by the very end, they're spewing vitriol at him and saying, uh, everything that we said before, I don't know, scratch it. You're steeped in sin from birth. So they're moving on different tracks. Other reactions to this story. It's a good one. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Oh, am sorry. I always feel really
4: sorry for the blind guy because no one gives a damn about him, and he's clearly—I imagine—blindness is terrifying. I imagine getting healed of blindness is slightly less terrifying, but also terrifying. <laughs> um, and he's kind of just relegated after this. He becomes the, op- the, the human object.
3: It's interesting. I was reading a lot of stuff on this, and and in the thought of the day, that might have been the ultimate miracle because it was couched in such theological language, and, and so few people made claims of having done this. You know, it, it might have, you know, had, Amy might have said, well, I levitated a stool, and Elizabeth said, I levitated a sofa, and Wendy says, well, I levitated a building. I mean, there were lots of miracle workers who said they did things like this, but healing a blind person had dramatic significance, and and another thing I thought about this that that follows that when I was reading the story is, you know, I feel like I can do this and maybe we can do this. We can be victims of our own positions of what really is right, what's right about church, what's right about following God, what what it should be, and sometimes miss the personal story. That we don't ask enough What would you say personally about God in your life? What does it mean to you to follow Christ? Why do you follow Christ? I know when I asked that question last week, we always joke about the stool in the middle of some of your best friends. It's one of the most vulnerable things in the world. And I realized last week I asked you, why do you follow Jesus? And it it felt kind of odd because I don't know that we ask that question enough. And it's certainly not part of the dialogue here. Uh, It's all about what kind of theology stands for or falls, uh, regardless of this man's experience. Thanks, Karen. The other, yeah, sure I think one thing that's kind of interesting, this is a big thing going on here, the
5: question of identity. And I think for the Pharisees, they're just kind of consumed with, in a sense, what their identity is as the people of God. And at this point, people maintain the law. It's sort of this... You maintain the law, and it's just this sign that that you're the people of God, and that's how everyone knows that you're the badge because you have the law, and that makes you the people of God, and you don't have that badge you're not the people of God. So this is sort of like a boundary enforcement of who are sin, who are sinners and who are the people of God, who's not. And they never it's like being so obsessed with your own identity as a people. You never stop just what is the identity of God and what does God do? And in this case, God, you know, they're in a sense, it's actually worrying about their own identity to the people of God. And the question is, you know, who is the son of man, and who is God? And God's this guy that kills, kills blind people, no matter which day. And, you know, you think of that whole thing somewhere else, where it says, you know, man is not created for the south, and the south for man. Like all that anything. And then, ironically, it kind of ends up with they're putting, they're trying to put this guy to trial and whatnot. And Jesus actually says, for judgment, I've come into the world. It's interesting who actually is on trial here. In the eyes of, of Jesus, it's, it's not a blind guy. It's still the blind guy. It's, it's this
3: identity boundary marker thing that's almost on trial here. Mm. Several things on that. One thing triggered that I think is so important, I'm not going to follow this trail tonight, but I, I want to next week, is the idea of how do we recognize the presence of God? It's interesting. You have some people who who recognize, uh, and, and the most untrained person in the room is the one who seems to recognize Christ. We say this, Amy said it tonight, we say it in Emmaus Way every week, that one of the reasons we gather is at the table, and we gather to hear each other's voices. We understand that redemption is bigger than our own experiences, and unless we hear each other's stories, we can't recognize redemption in this world. And many of us have said, I'm not sure I wouldn't give up if if i didn't have you around me saying here's how i perceive the goodness or grace of god in this world i don't know that there's a compelling case other than those stories so to speak and one of the things that maybe we don't do enough of is talking about how do we recognize the grace and goodness of God, which is so wonderfully seen by this man who has everything to lose, including being being thrown out by the religious leaders of his day. And John is writing it 70 to 80 years later saying people who make this confession are surely being thrown out of the synagogue. Jesse, you were going to say something too. Well,
7: This story just reminds me of when I was growing up in fundamentalist churches and I, I, I inherited this fear of my own experience—that you know, my—I my, I was supposed to not really learn anything from my experience, but everything was supposed to come from the Bible. And and if my experience told me something different, then my experience was wrong. I didn't understand it correctly. And I see this happening in the story where the guy's saying, "Look, I, you know, I can see. I was blind, and now I can see." And that doesn't fit into these rigid theological categories. That. Pharisees have created it it, it. it doesn't match up, and so it has to be wrong. Either he wasn't really blind, or some, you know, that experience has to be different than it was. Um, and uh, it, it's a, it's really, it's really still a struggle for me to sort of hold intention. Uh, you know, I, I th- there are just these vestiges of tr- always trying to maintain some sort of theological system. Even if it's reforming or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling parts out here and putting new ones in there, I still, I still want to hold on to that. But I feel like this story it takes me in another direction altogether. Just The system is never going to <laughs> offer you the truth. You just have to be open to new experiences. That's what I'm hearing here. What a
3: good story! Trigger raises the, the the ire that something is in judgment here. Something is being judged by Christ. One of the things I would suggest that's being judged by Christ is, is fear. Fear is on the side of the other argument. This this and and how many times have we lapsed into a biblio idolatry or a doctrinal idolatry? We've basically said it can't happen, therefore it didn't happen, so to speak. Uh, and in some ways, uh, there's something powerful and experiential, and it's not individualistic. There's other communities of people, parents, neighbors. uh, Some of the Pharisees are saying, dude, he was blind. <laughs> this is incredible. In fact, the, the the tutu story, I don't think is that too far away from this because every time John writes this, you get the sense that the disciples kind of swell by two or three people say, Now I'm not on that team anymore. But in some ways, I think a lot of us have grown up in ways where our beginning point of understanding whether Jesus is present is the fears that we've been taught to hold on to. And I have them too. I mean, a good fundy Southern Baptist kid, I wake up you know, one Wednesday a month and go, oh my God. What am I telling these people? You know, we, we were nurtured to be afraid of things rather than to be imaginative, experiential, hoping and dreaming. One last thing on this text, and we'll, we'll pick this up some more next week because I, wanna, I really want to talk about this idea of sin in this text. I, I think that you're going to find some things that are deeply encouraging when you ask the question, what, what really is the nature of skin, sin? Because Jesus has rebuked this idea that our pain is due to our sin in this story, and I didn't jump into this. But one of the things that I think makes this story really significant is that in the, the early church, think 1st century and beyond, 2nd and 3rd century... There were, were basically um, several tracts that people read when they were baptized. There were the, um, I'm trying to think of the, the word is escaping me. Somebody who knows that might could tell me better. But the, they, they had a specific word for a baptismal liturgy. And, um, and what they often read was liturgies from the Old Testament about water and um and then uh, the Gospel, the prologue of John's Gospel, but this final story, John nine was read to the early church before they were baptized, and in fact this this word of um, that when the man says Lord, I believe that was the final words before a, a baptismal candidate was baptized in the early church. This story was surrounded with significance because it was understood as this is what it looks like to recognize the presence of Christ among us. And again, one of the themes of this whole John thing for us as a community, to work hard to tell enough of our stories so that we, 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 we find and we see and we interrogate the goodness of God. And the way John has written this, it's really interesting to see uh, what, what stands up in the story, what stands up as good what stands up as gracious, what stands up as to what we can hold on to and, and cling to. Well, this will be continued next week to, as we talk a little bit more about this idea of sin in John's gospel. I think that's appropriate for us as we sit in the middle of Lent. Um, tonight, as Dan is going to uh, lead us to the table here in a moment, but one of the things that, that Wade and I were talking about is in our, our musical liturgy tonight, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, both confession and then a couple of songs of absolution. And Wade, this is, I think, one of my favorite songs that you've written, Leaving Seattle. It it tells the story of, of, in some ways, Jesse, what you've echoed is that it's fearful for us to ask the question what stands in my future what encounters are present for me and wade you can pick that up i I, I don't know if you want to share a little bit of when you wrote this story
0: yeah thanks yeah i um i'm glad you mentioned it when we were talking over this week i um was at a place where i'd been with a band uh touring for a number of years and um kind of had reached a point where workload and people's different schedules and stuff meant that the band really was not gonna continue the way that it had and um had a tour that was just really physically difficult, just challenging and, and uh, not a lot of fun. Uh, I remember trying to finish sets during concerts going, man, only three more songs. And that's not a very fun way to play concerts. And, and um, Then uh, there are also some issues in, in my marriage. I did uh, that band with uh, my wife at the time, and um, I knew there were some things that were, were challenging me. It'd take a while for the fruit to sort of uh, come, come forward on that, but I left Seattle that night thinking there's something really big and different here about what's going on, where we're headed, and, and uh, I, I was fearful. The fear we're kind of talking about tonight I, I definitely had in my life, and so um, I think this is a song that uh, kind of explores that, uh, like Tim said, is our confession
1: Seattle in the dark of the night. Road that was pointed for home. The radio said there'd be fog and delays. Wind put a chill in my bones. My heart needed help and the van was no better. So we packed up and got underway. Had my life in the back for the journey ahead My headlights were lost in the haze And the road up ahead is all curved and I'm The biker I met with his common-law wife made me think I might fear for my life. So I hurried to pay for the gas and I prayed the engine would not quit that night. As it coughed, it sputtered and flickered for life. spring from the wasteland of while each passing mile says I'm closer to home I know there's God, it's so far to go. Yeah, it's so far to go. Mm-hmm.
8: Frankly, uh, lint is a bit insulting. I mean, for those of you that are not familiar with Lent, or if you don't know what season we're in in the church, it's a time when we mark our foreheads with ashes on Ash Wednesday. We talk about death. We talk about repentance. Uh, We talk about confession. We talk about all these things that just really are not all that polite. And for people who kind of have a future that they're looking forward to, it's a bit insulting. It's a bit insulting to be told that, We need to confess or that we have or that we might need to repent or that the the future that we have all worked out for ourselves might not exactly be what God has in mind. So it's a bit weird at this time in the church calendar that we hear this naive claim. Do you also want to be his disciples? Do you also want to come and follow him? The passage that we read tonight seems to make a, not much sense. Why in the world would you want to become a disciple when it requires something like Lent? Why in the world would you want to follow Christ if it means beating yourself up? I mean, after all, we've got enough going on right now. There's enough hardship to go around. There's enough uh, economic hardship and enough kind of issues that we're facing. Why Lent? I think what we find as we come to the table tonight is that with Jesus at the center of the story, when our eyes are opened to see Christ, that Lent takes on quite a different meaning. That the exercise of Lent in the church is not about beating ourselves up. It's not about groveling. It's not about weighing ourselves down with guilt but it is instead an understanding that a church that can participate in Lent is a church that already recognizes that it is not defined or determined by what it has to be sorry for that in some sense the future is opened by the fact that we can tell the truth about ourselves That in fact, during Lent, as we make this long road to Easter, we find there a freedom, a freedom to be a truth-telling community. Because at the center of this community is Christ. As you come to the table tonight, you're going to receive the sacrament, the grace of God born into our lives through wine and through bread. As we break it for one another, our eyes will be opened to see Jesus, to see the grace of God. And it is because of that that we can confess. And it is because of that we can tell the truth. And it is because of that our lives are opened to a future that is more marvelous than the one we could make for ourselves. As we come tonight... At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come. We'll come to the table up here, breaking bread for one another, breaking it off and sharing it with one one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And we'll pour wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you, reminding one another that this is where we see Christ, where we see God's grace. As we do that, Wade and these guys are going to play the songs of absolution over us so that you will be reminded That in this activity, we are forgiven. That Christ stands at the center. And upon receiving that, we then go out in peace. We go on out of here as people who tell the truth. I invite you now to the table. Come and see Christ. Receive the good gifts. And have your future open wide. Amen.
1: No excuse, no one to blame where to hide. The eyes of God have found my failures, found my pain. He understands my weaknesses, knows my shame. His heart never leaves me It's your kindness that leads us To repentance, oh Lord Knowing that you another chance and Suddenly the kindest words I've ever heard come flooding from God's heart It's your kindness that leads us to repentance Oh Lord Knowing that you No matter what we do Makes us want to love you too Well if you are for us Who can be against us You gave us everything Even your only son It's your kindness that leads us to repentance O oh the Lord knowing that you love us no matter what we do makes us want to love you it's your kindness that leads us to repentance O oh Lord knowing that you no matter what we do, it makes us want to the man.